Listen, there's a reason the ultra-wealthy have been investing in fine wine for centuries. Historically stable returns and a lack of volatility make it stand out compared to traditional assets, especially during a downturn. But now you can invest alongside with them with Vint. Vint is an SEC-qualified investment platform that offers shares of the most sought-after wines in the world. So join the thousands of investors diversifying with fine wine and spirits. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today, I interview Peter Zhou, the CEO of Rudder. Rudder has raised $30 million from investors like A16Z, the CEO Plaid, and others. Uh, they are creating a universal API for e-commerce platforms, marketplaces, accounting systems, and payment processors. We talked about how he started the company, uh, how to start a company in general. We talked about his experience at Yale and the future of education, as well as the trends and future in payments, fintech, and crypto. Awesome conversation, and I hope you enjoy. Here is Peter Show. All right, Peter. So just like that, we're recording. Uh, I'm excited to chat with you. I, I love what you're working on. Um, to start the conversation, could you give a just brief overview on how you articulate the direction of Rudder, what you're building today, and then we can go from there. Yeah, sure. Starting with a, a pretty interesting question. Um, I, I would say interesting because I think what we're doing and building right now differs a lot from what we want to do in the future. Um, I, I would say that the, uh, you know, Twitter tagline of what we do right now uh, in 140 characters we're a universal API for commerce data. Uh, and specifically, we work with fintech companies. And so we are the pipelines for uh, anyone that does business underwriting to collect the financial health data that they need about a certain business. Um, where we want to be uh, in, in the long term is sort of this universal read and write API for all things commerce. And so we want to be the universal layer for moving products, orders, and fulfillments data across the world. Hmm. And is underwriting typically for businesses in this application things like loans, or would it be? Uh, it's not a it's it's not a consumer related loan. It's always a business related loan, typically from a bank to a small business. Yeah, exactly, Mike. So uh, business lending, uh, banking, credit cards. So we work with Ramp that does a business credit card, uh, business insurance, FP&A, and then uh, M&A or uh, M&A marketplaces. That's like our deal customer. M&A marketplaces. So what's the process today, like prior to Rudder? Yeah. So um, essentially the problem that we solve as a universal API is there's all of these different ways. Uh, there's all of these different business systems that you can get data from. Uh, so we kind of abstracted it into uh, three types of entities, payment processors, uh, storefronts, and, and then accounting platforms. Uh, and so... Amongst those three categories, there's a ton of different companies and a ton of different platforms within each category. And every single uh, platform has its own API, its own way to read and interpret that data. And so if you're a company that wants to examine a business and understand how they're performing, uh, you basically have to integrate into every single one of those APIs, uh, understand the schema, understand how you compare that schema to that of a different platform. Uh, and so you basically build this giant abstraction for any payment processor, uh, accounting platform, or storefront. And so we just offer that one middle uh, integration layer as a service. Mm. So you would be connecting into the companies that connect into the payment processors. Is that right? We would, uh, we would be connecting into the payment processors on behalf of a company that wants to underwrite them. Okay, um, got it. So I think the best analogy is 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 Plaid, which does uh, banking data. And so in the same way that a consumer connects their bank account via Plaid and Plaid solves this problem of there being 
a ton of different types of bank accounts around the world. Um, we do the same thing for businesses. So a business application wanting to access a business system uses Rudder uh, in the same way that a consumer uh, fintech app uses Plaid to connect bank accounts. So what would be the types of companies you're pulling into on the payment processing side, for instance? I know that there's three, three, three separate types, the accounting, storefront, payroll or uh, payment processing. Yeah. Is this something like you're, you're connecting into Stripe, authorized exactly. that, PayPal, that kind of thing? Yep. Stripe, uh, Stripe, PayPal, checkout, Adyen, authorize. Um, there's probably like bill pay providers as well. So like bill.com, um, any, any platform where you'd find revenue data. Gotcha. And then the accounting side, is that like QuickBooks? Yeah. Zero? QuickBooks, Zero, NetSuite, FreshBooks, Sage, uh, Zoho, SAP Concur, and so on. Mm-hmm. And what's storefront? Is that like point of sale software? Yeah. So I, I think the the storefront ab- abstraction that we have is anyone selling e-commerce goods. So Shopify, BigCommerce, WooCommerce. We also lump in marketplaces into that. So Amazon, eBay, Etsy, Walmart, Jet, Wish, uh, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so a a, a business wants to go and get a new credit card or take out a loan. And they typically today would have to go to a bank and like export data from their bank, from their Excel, from their QuickBooks and from the payment processors. And then do they, right now, are they sending that over and then just somebody manually processes that on the bank side? Yeah, that's a good question, Mike. So, um, so yeah, that, that's exactly how it works right now. Uh, sometimes banks don't even ask for information. They just look at the bank's cash flow. So they just look at your existing bank account. Uh, and what people have discovered and the reason why uh, this alter- this lending via alternative data is becoming such a big thing is you can underwrite someone way better when you really understand what goes into that money in, money out. And so when you understand SKU level and customer level data on every bank transaction or all, all payments and revenue and expenses, you get a much better picture of that financial health than just looking at a bank account. And so the default way that a bank would underwrite someone right now is either asking them for some packet that represents these financial statements uh, and and then having an analyst manually go through those uh, or just looking at uh, the money in, money out of that bank account. So that's interesting. So an example of that would be a company that sells, like say they're selling shoes and they connect to Shopify, they connect to... Uh, QuickBooks and they connect to Stripe, they, if a bank was to give them a loan or make an assessment of underwriting, they're, today they're not going to have access to, like what's in this example, what would be the type of thing that a bank would have visibility yeah. into? Yeah, yeah. So um, let's say you have uh, this e-commerce merchant, they're selling shoes, uh, they're on a bunch of these different channels, they also have an accounting platform. And so in the old day, uh, if a bank wanted to underwrite this business, the bank would just look at uh, the bank statement. And so all they would see is a bunch of money in, money out, a bunch of these different transactions. They wouldn't have any visibility into what was actually sold. The, all they could go off of is this description. Um, with this method, uh, they have these alternative sources of data. So uh, the exact data from Amazon or the exact data from Shopify, and then specifically for cost data, the exact data from whatever accounting platform that that merchant uses. Uh, and so it provides a lot uh, better of a picture than just uh, low fidelity description and then money in, money out that you'd find on a bank statement. Now, if a bank wanted to underwrite that business, they can understand exactly what the cost of goods sold were for that merchant, uh, exactly uh, what SKUs are performing well and what the customer segment is that's buying those shoes and whether that revenue is expected to be recurring or just one off. Uh, and what the seasonality looks like based on uh, when when that revenue comes in. And so mm-hmm. the bank gets a lot better of a picture on how that business is performing than just looking at uh, the pure volume of, of that bank statement. Yeah, yeah. It was effectively, if you kind of pull that upstream, I'd imagine the, the value prop in the whole macro economy is money is deployed more intelligently. It's, it's given, more money is given exactly. to companies who are genuinely growing well, and then companies who are not, aren't going to get as much, you know, they can't like fraudulently show some money coming in where they're not actually doing that well. It's interesting. 
that is that, is that how you think of it? Like from a big picture standpoint? Yeah. <clears throat> and, and I think that's, that's, that, that's exactly how I think about it. And it's especially relevant in the current times where uh, access to capital is getting a lot harder. And then the bar for what a healthy business looks like is getting a lot higher. And so mm-hmm. to actually determine healthy businesses versus unhealthy businesses, you need to understand the data that goes into that business. Yeah. It's interesting. And so tell me, where, where are you guys in this process, I guess, in terms of money raise or employees or revenue, or however you measure progress? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think we've grown revenue uh, like five times since the beginning of the year. Um, we've raised, uh, we just announced our 27 million Series A led by Andreessen Horowitz in March. Uh, and then I think we're at 49 people now. So mm. have been growing pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what, what about customers or revenue? Can you mention how how you guys have grown in that area? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I just mentioned we, we grew five times since the start of the year. I think in total, I think just shy of 100 customers at this point. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, it's interesting. And w- what about prior? I know you had a kind of an interesting story coming into Rudder, uh, although I don't know the specifics of it. W- what was the origin story? I heard you guys pivoted a bunch of different times. Um when was that? And what was that experience like for you? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I, I will say the idea of Rudder definitely evolved since its inception. And then we had uh, a really long journey prior to starting Rudder. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I can talk about both. Uh, what do you want me to chat about first? Well, let me ask you this. What, what was it? What was the moment in which you realized this this specific, I think of um, the little preamble on this. I think of business ideas as simple when they're defined, you know, as you explain rudder to me, I'm like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. But it's really, really hard to come up with and see the, the path through the clouds. You know, there's so many different companies doing so many different things. And as a founder, you, you both think about, I mean, I've, I've been in your shoes exactly where you're thinking about, you want to go down a pathway where there's enough opportunity down that pathway. People would want what you're building, but also that you're not heading into like, you know, uh, a watering hole with tigers where there's just you know, <laughs> hyper competitive, like billions of dollars already deployed 10 years ago in this space. And it's, it's super, super commoditized. Uh, w- what was the moment that you realized that you had a sweet spot in between those two avenues? There's enough opportunity and there's not, a, there's, there's enough uh, lack of competition. Yeah. I would say I probably segment that into two moments that that stand out to me. Um, the first is just realizing that the problem existed. So um, a lot of people say, you know, um, when, when you start a company, you should look for a personal problem or problem that you've experienced. Um, the way that we started Rudder was actually working in ed tech. So um, we basically ended up uh, working with edtech vendors and building solutions for them to manage their inventory across different channels. So you'd have uh, a bookseller or like a subscription kit seller who'd be selling their stuff uh, on their Shopify store and they try to list their products on Amazon or they try to list it on Etsy as well. And so in building that product to help them manage that inventory and sync that product catalog, we had this meta problem where we didn't really spend time building the actual product. We spent all of our time building these new integrations. So we get another vendor that comes in and they'd say, hey, I'm on WooCommerce. We'd go and build that integration out. We get another person come in saying they were on Squarespace. Then we'd pause our roadmap and build that integration out. And so the idea really came out of uh, this meta problem that we experienced building this tool for edtech vendors. The second moment that I think really stood out to me that this was going to work uh, and, and to your point, it was an open market instead of something that was highly competitive, um, is we, de- we definitely took a different approach on this company uh, compared to all of the other ideas that we've attempted. Usually, uh, me and my co-founder being engineers, we'd always love to build things first and then sell. This time around, we decided to sell uh, the idea and, and pitch the solution before building anything. And we knew this was going to work because I think in the second month, we closed around like 100K in contracts without writing a single line of code. And that was when we were like, that was way different from any idea that we'd ever worked on before. What did you have? Like you're taking a call, you email the folks, uh, some, like, what was that process more specifically? How, how did you identify the people you want to reach out to? How did you get a hold of them? And what was the pitch like? Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
There's no silver bullet here. I, I think we're also lucky given that we're an API product. So the main thing that we demoed was actually the documentation. So all we had to do was show a developer or show a product person the docs, and they understood exactly what we we're doing immediately. Um, and, and in the process for reaching out to these people, we just started with the Shopify App Store. So we reached out to most of the developers on the Shopify App Store. Uh, if you look at uh, the products that they're selling, they usually have a website and they have an integrations tab where they support Shopify, they probably support WooCommerce, and then they have a roadmap for developing a Magento integration, a BigCommerce integration, an Amazon integration, and so on. And so we'd go to those developers and we'd say, hey, you have this roadmap for all of these different integrations. It's going to take you a year or two to build all of them out. We can just provide that to you with a single API and then you won't have to maintain any of it anymore. Mm, and they they would pay for that? Yeah. Yeah. And what's, what was the pitch to them? It was like, uh, or what, what is the pricing model? It's consumption-based. Uh, and so we usually do annual contracts, but they grant a certain amount of consumption. Uh, and then what we consider consumption there's two levers. One is API calls. So how many times you're hitting the API. Uh, and then the second is a, a term that we call connections. So every time a unique merchant or a unique business authenticates whatever system of record they use, whether it's the accounting platform or their payment processor or their storefront, anytime they run through that authentication uh, via rudder, we start syncing that data and normalizing it for our customers. And each one of those authentications uh, counts as a connection for us. And so we charge on connections and then API calls. And a business is typically thinking about integrating Rudder primarily for access to capital and underwriting with investment banks or just banks in general. Is that the right way to think about it? Or Yeah, it, we, we kind of sit in a really complicated spot within, yeah, within the it. ecosystem since there are multiple stakeholders. You have our customers, which are the tools and, and products and services that sell to these businesses and merchants. You have the merchants that are trying to use those tools. You have the platforms that uh, those merchants live on top of. Uh, and so we sell to the customer, and uh, which is the product and service that sells to merchants and SMBs. And the problem that they experience is they want to sell their product or service to those merchants and SMBs. But those people are on all of these different platforms. And so to actually interface with that merchant or, or sell that product to them, they have to understand their data and they have to build this integration into every single platform that that person can be on to understand uh, data across all of those platforms. And so our value prop to our customers, which are the products and services uh, that sell to businesses and SMBs, um, is we speed up their go-to-market, we expand the addressable market of merchants and SMBs that they can go after, uh, and then we do all of this in, in a fraction of cost because they don't need to hire uh, an actual engineering team to build this out. Did, have, did you think about it earlier as selling to the merchants themselves? Like, is it obvious that you're selling into the, uh, the what would it be like, the, the app developers or the app companies that are selling into merchants? Does my question It, it wasn't obvious at all. Okay. okay. Yeah, <laughs> that, that makes total sense. Um, that, that's actually how we came up with the idea. So the, the start of Rudder was when we were building this inventory management solution to help merchants and SMBs. And so there we built this product that synced catalog and inventory information and we sold that directly to merchants. What we ended up realizing is building that product, the majority of that product was just figuring out how to interact and interface with every single platform that a merchant or SMB could be on. And so taking a step back, and realizing that there were so many different types of products and services that merchants used, that was a way more interesting market to go after than going after and providing an inventory management service. So we actually started with a direct-to-merchant offering and then realized that selling to people and enabling them to sell to merchants and SMBs was a lot more interesting. If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen... We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by ZenGo. These guys realize that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. 
they realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. That's that's super interesting. Um, I, I'm, I'm so curious to parse this out a little bit more. So the merchants would yeah. be the people who are selling the products, like their shoe company in that example. And yeah. they likely have, they're likely not thinking about software as, as, especially software integration to backend tools as the primary thing that they're focused on. It's like, how do I make better shoes? How do I sell those shoes? And then, oh, by the way, we have to maintain Shopify and we have all these apps and things we want to integrate to. So there's there's already this, uh, you're slightly deprioritized in their strategic objectives, whereas the companies that are selling into the merchants already have, you know, they already have a sales team. They're primarily thinking about integrating to these merchants. So initially you go after the merchant because they're the ones with the dollars, they're higher upstream. Um but they're also more, it's probably, what was it, more competitive to get into the merchants and more confusing on, what was the pushback that you would get from merchants? Yeah, inventory management is is just a really crowded space of tools uh, to sell to merchants. Uh, so if you think about who our customer actually is and what the market is that we're going after, just imagine the suite of tools that a merchant uses. So a merchant is probably on some kind of marketing platform. So Klaviyo or Yotpo or a HubSpot or Salesforce or something. Uh, they probably have a shipping and fulfillment provider. Uh, if they're selling other products, they're probably using a drop shipping or print-on-demand company. Uh, they need to do their taxes, and so they probably have an accounting automation or, or uh, an accounting service as a company. Um, and then if they want capital, they probably work with uh, a vendor that, that provides them loans. And so all of those uh, companies, the marketing company, the shipping and fulfillment company, the drop shipping company, uh, the accounting automation the underwriting and lending company, they're all trying to sell the service to those merchants. And the problem is that that merchant can be on Shopify or WooCommerce or BigCommerce or uh, Amazon or eBay or Etsy. And for those companies to sell that product to the merchant, they need to understand that merchant's data. And the way you do that is different across all of those different commerce platforms and accounting platforms. And so we basically sell that integrations layer to the underwriting company, to the shipping and fulfillment company, to the marketing company. And what we do is we're basically the picks and shovels that enable them to really easy abstract away and access all of the merchant data on any platform, regardless of what platform it comes from. And so instead of them building every single integration out, they integrate once with us. In in cases where these, these, what did you call these? Like the, the people who, the companies who sell into the merchants, they're the providers? Uh, Well, uh, we call them the vendors. Vendors, okay. So if a vendor has been around for a while and they have integrations to you know, Shopify, Magento, BigCommerce, is the value prop less compelling for them because they have their existing APIs all set up versus a smaller, yeah. newer vendor? So the value prop there is maintenance. So Shopify's API updates every quarter, uh, and I think they notify everyone prior of breaking changes. Most platforms actually act that way. Uh, and then... When you deal with a self-hosted platform, so for example, Magento and WooCommerce, uh, if you are a merchant running on those platforms, you you run your own instance, which can be any version uh, prior to, to the most updated one. Uh, and so the maintenance costs on the vendor side is that they have to deal with every single one of those versions and they have to deal with it constantly updating. Uh, and so our value prop is that we basically uh, take all of that pain away from the vendor. And, mm. and keep all the APIs update, 
uh, updated for any version of the platforms that they work with. Got it. So maintenance is a significant cost. I'd imagine you'd agree that there it's less compelling if they've already spent the time to integrate than it would be to a a younger company that hadn't done those integrations yet. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's less of a pain, but that's the sort of constant enduring pain that you'd, you'd experience when you build all the integrations out yourself. Mm -hmm. And plus you're riding a big trend in that there's going to be ever more vendors making the merchants more profitable and efficient and successful long-term. It's kind of interesting if you think about it, like if you almost paint this as a picture visually, you have the merchants who are the ones that directly connect to the consumer. So they're they're the ones who figure out like what what do people in the market actually want? Like what color shoes do they want? What style of shirt do they want? I, I tend to think that's like the tip of the spear between um, supply and demand. You know, th- 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 it's really competitive. There's a lot of innovation, a lot of creativity at that level of a sort of level of abstraction in the economy. And and I think that that drives every, everything else behind it. So then you have w- what platforms like Shopify is a really successful company because they're right behind the merchant. You know, it's a, it's a simple tool that, uh, that many people use to sell products. Many, let me speak more articulately, m- many merchants use to be able to sell more products efficiently. And then there's kind of this like trailing cloud of vendors behind that, all the apps in the app store on Shopify. You know, th- some of the, uh, there's a friend of mine who runs like a $100 million app on Shopify. They're like just an app in the app store and they're $100 million business. And it's, it's, it's wild that there's such a, uh, like a secondary derivative market of vendors behind the, the merchants. And then I think of what you're doing is like you're, would you agree that it's it's allowing the merchants to better utilize the vendors and then the secondary vendors behind them? Like it's um, it's it's yeah. almost like glue or how? What would be an analogy? Yeah, that's a great way to think yeah. about it. Yeah. yeah. So we're basically the glue between um, the vendors and then the merchants that they'd want to interact with. I, I think the trend that we've been seeing that that causes this company to exist is one, uh, not only are there a ton of different platforms coming out, so you have Shopify, you have all of the major marketplaces in the world, there's this new trend of headless commerce where uh, there's a ton of just API uh, commerce platform as a service. So commerce layer, fabric, nacelle, uh, and, and so on. And so you have a lot more uh, platforms that you can start a business on uh, and then in, in parallel, there's a lot more of different vendors that a merchant uh, can use. And so there's a lot more products that merchants use to better sell or optimize uh, their spend. So you have now like buy now, pay later companies. Uh, you have one click checkout companies. You have returns as a service, warranties as a service. Um, I, I think we definitely think that we're still in the very early days of different products uh, and services being built for businesses. And so we kind of want to be the glue that connects those vendors building those products and services with all the merchants on all the different platforms that they're on. Mm. Do you think of these as being segregated by the the types of businesses that these merchants are? So if I'm a, a services merchant, I'm not going to use Shopify. If I'm selling a physical product that needs to get shipped in the mail, Shopify is perfect. If I'm a, uh, a marketplace of sorts where I'm connecting buyers and sellers, Shopify, not really a great fit. There's, but there's other th- emerging vendors for those merchants in, in the marketplace. So as, as there's more of a splintering or increasing complexity on the merchant offerings, then there's like a, a growing uh, chasms or like growing industries behind those specific types. So like direct to consumer would be a whole suite of products specifically for that. And then you'd have services. I, I think of marketplaces. I don't know if there's others that's kind of fit this, uh, you know, SaaS is a, is a big category, I think akin to direct to consumer marketplaces and services. Does that align with how you think of the ev- evolution of industries? Yeah, I think that absolutely aligns. And that's exactly why uh, we focus on not just e-commerce storefronts, but also accounting platforms and payment processors. Um, when when you think about all of the different types of businesses on the internet, let's say um, 
you sell shoes versus you sell event tickets. Um, if you're a vendor that wants to sell, like, a, let's say you're, you're Clavio and you want to sell this marketing platform to those companies, mm-hmm. you really do treat those companies in the same way. They have customers that uh, this merchant would want to email uh, and then they sell a product, whether it's a physical good like a shoe or it's a digital good like an event ticket. Uh, and so coming up with the right abstraction for what a business or a merchant is, uh, quote unquote, is what enables us to, to be really effective to a, a marketing platform or a fintech company like a Clavio or like an Uncapped or something. Mm-hmm. And the other th- the other factor here is that so many companies are always trying to grow what they're going after. You know, if you're if you're providing email marketing tools, well, you're eventually going to grow into uh, a, a broader marketing tools and then build out to like e- email outbound tools, and it just it's fascinating to me how companies like bump up against each other, but they sort of carve out the, the product is not independently defined inside the company. It's always defined in relative to where the cut, what the customers want and then what currently is out there already. And you, you, they kind of like weave together, which I find that weaving fascinating. I mean, effectively that's like business strategy, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's where, it's where product meets, the strategy of where product is going, which, um, yeah. Yeah. If you talk about marketing platforms specifically, I think that's just a, a really good example, uh, that when anyone gets too big, you definitely end up stepping on other people's toes. Hmm. What, what about headless commerce? Do you think, what, what was the company recently? Uh, bolt bolts, was it that went through a big collapse? Uh, Oh, fast. Fast, yeah, they fast. They do one-click checkout, yeah. Why, are they headless commerce? Is they in that category? Uh, no, so no, so fast wasn't. and bolt are in, are in the category of, of one-click checkout. Headless commerce really describes, um, let me think of a good way to uh, draw an analogy here. So when you think of a company like Shopify, they offer this full-stack service where not only do they provide uh, the website and a website builder for displaying uh, your catalog and displaying your store contents, but they also provide the under-the-hood order management. So uh, all of the business logic and the database for managing orders, managing fulfillments, and so on. And, and so Headless Commerce describes a, a backend system where uh, it, it separates that website from the database and the business logic that manages orders for a store. Headless Commerce specifically refers to the database and, and the orders uh, and the order management. Uh, and what people realized is as stores get more complex, they might have custom flows or custom uh, orders that are placed or custom data that they want to, to be interacting with. And so now you have companies that just build that order management, hyper-optimized and hyper-customized as a service. And then the company, the merchants that use headless commerce platforms, they often work with a hyper-optimized front end, so a super performant front end only builder, so like a Shogun uh, or like a Commerce JS, let's say. Mm. And would these companies be the, the types, the reasons why they would be moving to headless commerce is just size and complexity of the business. So they're exactly later stage companies. They're, would they be typically on Shopify, and then Shopify is just saying? hey, we can't address this market size with our current product roadmap? Yeah, that's exactly right. So as a merchant or a brand gets larger and larger, they probably have specific things that they they care about given the specific product that they sell. So like, um, you know, let's say you sell like... um, I think Mudwater is is a recent one that that I've seen that I'm fascinated by. Let's say you sell like a subscription tea or something. Well, you want to be able to manage subscriptions. Uh, And that's a poor example because I think Shopify does manage that. But Mm -hmm. if if you wanted to set up recurring billing, let's say, not every platform that comes out of the box is able to support that. And so that's where you'd use something like a headless commerce platform. So you can configure and set up your own like recurring order management. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's interesting, man. Um, and so you guys started this business. You've been working together for a while. You you met your partner at Yale, I believe. Uh, what, yeah. What's 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 Yale like nowadays? <laughs> um, it's it ha- a lot of fun. 
it, I also, yeah, I'll caveat ahead. that by saying it, uh, it is in the headlines frequently for the political influence that it seems to have internally with a lot of like, uh, it, it, when I think about like woke progressive, um, policies or uh, communities within universities, Yale is one of the first ones that people tend to bring <laughs> up. Is that your experience or w- could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that, that's so funny, Mike. Um, I, I think I, I try really hard to not get super involved in those things. Um, my memory of Yale is just that it is definitely one of the happiest campuses that I've been on. Uh, so I really loved meeting all the people there. I made a lot of like lifelong college friends. Uh, and then, yeah, it is really just the best place to meet uh, a co-founder, especially. Nice. Well, that's keeping it nice and simple. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, well, we don't have to go down that road. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's not talk about politics right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's put put it like a a related cousin to it, which is when you think about growing a company now. So I I raised my series B in my last business, raised 23 million. We had about 50 people. Uh, There was no emphasis publicly on like the, it was like prior to the, the giant wave of social activism. It was, you know, I'm talking about my time period, like 2018, 2016, 2017, 2018. Ha- has there been a, uh, an influence on the public perception of growing a company that you think um, is uh, like overtly productive? Um you know, I'll say like certainly companies are here's here's a here's a place where you could start. Companies are being judged socially on yeah. diversity initiatives. On uh, I think e- even to say like the percentage of people on the team with varying levels of skin color and diversity is often just said like companies better perform with more diverse teams, and that all companies should have this initiative. SpaceX over the weekend had some internal employees that. Uh, said, hey, SpaceX is not a safe place to work. These employees mass emailed like thousands of people in the company. And then the CEO of SpaceX basically responded internally and said, hey, it's come to my attention that some people have spammed everyone in the company, some employees, we've terminated them and they're gone. We have to focus on getting to Mars. Companies like Coinbase have taken a very explicit approach to say that we as a company are going to focus only and talk about only the mission and we don't want to get involved in politics and hearing even just your quick um demeanor on this it feels like this would be a a pathway that i I don't know if you guys have gone down this route but paul graham from yc has said publicly like companies are going to eventually need to and those who survive in the long term uh, become apolitical and just focus on their mission. Otherwise, there's like tensions and distractions that pull people all day long, and the productivity of that company starts to deteriorate. That there, there seems to be wide variance on the strategies that different companies have taken on this. But given that it's such a topical and influential thing that could just grow to be such an enormous um, influence in, within companies. How have you thought about this? I mean, you guys are relatively small, but I think now's a good time to really, you know, come up with a strategy. Yeah, that that's an excellent question, Mike. I, I think you you've correctly pointed out that I'm I'm a little bit hesitant to talk about this. Um, I, I think the reason why one, it's it's a very controversial thing to talk about. Um, but in, in my opinion, so so we we actually uh, do make statements internally. Um, in, in my opinion. Uh, I don't really care about the public perception of the company. It is a lot more about uh, building a really great internal culture than it is uh, seeming like you're part of some faction or looking some way externally. Uh, And so like when I think about uh, announcements that we want to make or stances that we want to take as a company, it is really coming from a belief of, I think that this is right. Like for example, uh, abortion should be a human right. And so we've provided a new benefit now that allows employees to travel uh, to different states to get an abortion if they need one. Mm. Uh, and so I, I think I, I think of it a lot more from 
what is the right thing to do and what is the good thing to do rather than like what political side am I taking? Mm. Yeah. The, not to talk about, uh, rudder specifically, but if you talk about that, talk like depersonalize it for a second and talk about the strategy, Mm -hmm. I think the, the upside is that you're, uh, certainly topical, uh, that a company who stays relevant on changes in politics, uh, has an advantage in the marketplace over those that don't, because people will want to work for a type of company that they can, um, get those benefits from like, you know, two companies being exactly equal, those that would pay for me to fly to an abortion uh, is just better. The the price potentially that you that a company would pay by doing so is that it's it's not made independently of the social sphere and that it's it's specifically because this is such a topical, widespread, widely talked about issue today. Uh, that I believe it just comes across your plate and for most other companies as well. And so the, the, the rub or where, where I picked up on like Brian Armstrong from Coinbase's a description of why he took their stance, which was like, we're, we're going to be focused on crypto and that's it. Nothing else goes yeah. is that, uh, there's, there's some topics that are middle ground, that like, oh, you know, we don't know what the answer is going to be. This is like, you know, it's in Congress now or it's changing now and and we have to make a decision on it if we're going to become part of this part of this movement. And it's a people say the word ideology, but I think of it more as it's a, an association to a social club and and it's you're either affiliated with that or you're not. And you could there's various hashtags that people put out there to declare their affiliation or pronouns or that kind of thing. And I think my personal view on it is that by by trying to parse it in a non-emotional way and understand it uh, in this format and context provides almost like an immunity to that overarching benevolent social movement from becoming something that's kind of deteriorating to the fabric of society that it's it, it, this the, whenever large scale social movements happen or a lot of volatility happens in society i just view there to be a a risk of like tumors developing in the system you know in the sense that there's bad ideas that become socially pressured to become popular and like hey peter you got to take on this this new policy otherwise like we're going to shame you on Twitter. And, and that, that's the kind of thing that it's easy to say today uh, that you wouldn't be a part of. But I think the, the tendency is if companies don't articulate a, a, a genuine um, uh, uh, strategy, then they get caught up in the jet stream of wherever these policies go. So I know that was a long-winded way of saying it. And I, I'm just curious to hear your reactions yeah. to this or if, if you thought about it or talked about it with other folks. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I got the gist of that. Um, again, like I, I think the stance that I have on this, we, we didn't make any announcement on, on Roe v. Wade externally. Um, that is not... I think at the end of the day, a company is nothing without the people that make it. And so more important than building a great product is making sure that the people are fulfilled uh, and, and are happy at, at, at their job. Uh, and so like when we make announcements, it comes more from what is good for our people than it does, oh, I need to be part of this social circle or I need, I need to make some statement because everyone else is making it. Mm. Uh, and so th- that's the current stance. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, yeah. I think companies that are more on the edge are the ones that are more, you know, for, for the nice thing about Rudder is you're really, when it comes to this specifically, is that you're not on headlines. It's not like, you know, I'm reading a TechCrunch article, article about Rudder's policy. It'd be more like Disney. We talk about Disney. We talk about Nike. They're, they're more consumer brand recognizable companies. And I think that th- those resonate more uh, because they're just so recognizable by people. Whereas if there were to be an article on a business to business application company, well, like you'd have to first explain what the company does and have, it's just a, it's, it's, you're pushing more, you know, cognitive rocks uphill to get to to that. Whereas like Disney's doing this and all of a sudden it's on the news. Yeah. I don't even think, um, if, if we were a consumer company and we were always on the headlines, um, 
I mean, we're obviously kind of the furthest away from that doing mm-hmm. data infrastructure mm-hmm. for B2B or B2 merchant services. Uh, but even if we were on the headlines, I don't think you should be pressured by uh, you know society to make a statement. You should do what's right by your company and your people. Yeah. So regardless of, you should make these decisions without uh, societal or, or peer pressure. You know, for centuries, the ultra-wealthy have been putting their money where their mouths are by investing in fine wine. And now, with Vint, you can do that too. At Vint, we offer SEC-qualified investment opportunities of fine wine and spirits curated by our experts with portfolio managers. With Vint, you can invest and diversify into the most sought-after assets that have a history of price appreciation. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. Well, some companies can't get a, can't get around it, you know, like Netflix, for instance, to, they have to make a decision and YouTube and Twitter, they have to make a decision on who do we let in, in the, in the walls proverbially, and who do we kick out? And they're building an intentional community. It's not like, uh, you know, RSS feeds or something where they have policies and terms that are, you know, this is where Elon comes in and says, whatever is legal or illegal should be allowed. But if you don't take that policy, then you have then you have a uh, a cultivation of a community, and then you have to make judgment calls. And I think the judgment calls are where the rub is, you know, and and the and the the counteracting force against companies to say we want these changes with your content. Um, you're not in the content business, which is nice because you really don't have to think about this stuff. <laughs> but it is so topical, and there's so much energy behind it today that is just it's fascinating to me to watch yeah uh i mean thank god i'm not running a content business yeah yeah, Uh, yeah. but even if i were them um yeah i i think just sticking with doing what's right uh and and doing what you believe is right instead of being pressured by other people i I think is what the approach that i would take what what else have you learned about the market we talked a little bit about the layers of abstraction on uh, merchants to vendors, uh, you've done a lot of pivots and I, and having done a lot of pivots myself in past companies, I learned a ton. Uh, I I learned a ton that's like two inches deep and like a mile wide on different things. (laughs) Where, where did you go? Like, what, tell me a little bit about the things that you learned about in your pivoting journey. Yeah. Um, when you, when you say two inches deep and then uh, you know, a mile deep on, on a specific area that definitely resonates. Mm. I, I think we, I think overall we learned a lot about how to validate and gauge customer interest uh, on the different ideas that we worked on over the course of, uh, Eric and I have been working, my co-founder, Eric and I have been working on a company since summer 19. Uh, we were part of the YC summer 19 batch over the course of the, like almost three years at this point, uh, we've definitely explored, all sorts of different industries. So we built tools in internationalization. That's where we started. We built uh, infrastructure for translating your website or your web app into different foreign languages with professional translators. Uh, we built productivity uh, tools. We built product feedback aggregators uh, and like note takers. Um, we built a sleep app. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then later <laughs> on, the search got a lot better. We started exploring uh, changing industries and, um, and then went into ed tech and eventually came up with Rudder. And ed, ed tech, what was the foray in, into ed tech? Or how, how did you get into that? Yeah. So uh, this is probably like mid 2020, mm-hmm. I would say, just to set the stage. Um, I think pandemic started, you know, February, March of 2020. Uh, all the schools shut down abruptly. And then mid 2020, the fall semester is coming up. Uh, everyone is realizing that the schools are still shut down. And uh, virtual education was was pretty bad. Mm. Uh, it wasn't set up for success back then. And so what a lot of people started doing, a lot of parents started setting up this thing called micropods or just uh, pods where they'd hire an educator to just teach in their backyard and they bring a bunch of neighbors, uh, a bunch of like children of similar ages in, in their community to just learn in their backyard. And so... We thought that was a really interesting trend emerging uh, from the pandemic and decided to explore that. Mm. And in exploring that, we got to work with more and more edtech vendors. And that's how we had the channel uh, channel management uh, product that we built. 
What do you think the future of education is for say people, say people in the college age, like you know, eighteen to twenty, seventeen to twenty-two ish? What do you feel? Do you think college will continue as it is, or what general trends do you think we we're going to be looking at? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think that a lot of people. Uh, and, and I'm also optimistic about, um, hard to say this coming from a really good college, but I'm also optimistic about um, credentialing being less of a thing. Mm. Um, I, I think it will take a little bit more time than people think. I, I think in the long-term future, uh, you have a lot of personalized and specialized education. Uh, and then it, it matters a lot more, a lot less uh, where you came from. So what school you graduated from or what your credentials were and a lot more on, on skill-based proficiency. So what exactly are you capable of doing? Mm. Do you think there'll be a replacement to these like validator networks called universities where if you graduated uh, from uh, some MIT, then you have that diploma, that certificate, which is effectively, there's value in the network of the people you meet, but there's also value in the certificate of credentialing. That certificate seems like it could be done remotely, or at least other companies can compete directly with that certification process, like an online education platform that costs 10% of what MIT would cost, and you just do it online. Employers would have to recognize the validity of those of the emergent online platforms. But assuming that becomes at least close to in parity with, uh, you know, starting with like tier three schools and then climbing your way up to MIT level, do you, it seems to me that the the massive difference in price would just sway the, I mean, like the, you know, if you can have an online education experience that is comparable in the sophistication of the education to MIT and it's 10% the cost, I, I just, how, how does that, I mean, that must have an enormous impact into our world economy. Yeah, I think, uh, Instead of thinking it from like the tier three school all the way up to the tier one school, I, I think the way that it's happening right now and the way that it'll continue to happen is it'll be verticalized by uh, profession. Mm. So already you see these credentials like Lambda School or Hack Reactor specifically for computer science coming out. And like those are entirely uh, valid credentials to have. And, and people definitely consider those uh, when when considering someone for a job. And so we'll probably see that spread across all of the different professions uh, and, and and we'll see it verticalized and split and cut vertically rather than going horizontally by uh, uh, ranking of school or anything like that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I find the implications that are most interesting is the the access to the education. So you can be anywhere in the world and have access to the same quality of education as say like an MIT. And then there's the decrease in price. So now it's actually affordable and accessible. And then you, if is that you have the validation of the certificate that you can go through so now you're you're credentialed um i just it feels like such an enormous economic pressure that would be put on schools i i wonder if there's going to be like a depression or a popping of a bubble of sorts in like western colleges i mean they they seem to have just such a, a long-term vision and i i I mean, I haven't heard any concern from these schools, but, you know, is that possible? Like, could we just have a, like, sort of an implosion of colleges as students opt out of this, these schools? I, I, I think that's possible, and I'm optimistic about that happening long term. Uh, but just given, like, the, the extremely low acceptance rates, which keep getting lower every year, meaning more and more people are applying to these colleges. Uh, I, I don't see that happening in the mm. short term. I, I do think that what a lot of the programs miss is uh, is a network. And so it just like in the same way that I found my co-founder in college, it is a lot easier to build a really strong network via one of these institutions, especially if they pre-vet people uh, via like the SAT or the ACT or whatever. Uh, than it is to go to uh, a trade school or a school specialized by profession. Yeah. What do you feel about in-person versus remote? You know, the last few years with COVID, the vast majority of companies 
went remote and, and a lot of those stayed remote. Is that something you feel is an advantage and that you can hire people from all over the place or disadvantage because you can't have the dynamic interactions of an in-person experience or dependent on the business model or what, what are your yeah thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think there are definitely trade-offs that you have to make when you decide in-person versus remote. Um, I, I do believe that in-person interaction is a lot uh, higher productivity than remote interaction. Um, it does force really good. I, I do think that um, remote forces good company discipline where we, we basically have this thing uh, called uh, decision documents uh, at Rudder where Whenever a company level change is made, whether we're providing a new benefit or enacting a new policy, you basically write a document out describing that proposed change. And then either asynchronously or in a quick meeting with the relevant decision makers, decide on whether you enact this change. And then that change is posted on a company ledger where everyone can see exactly what changes and policies are, are implemented at the company. Uh, and so remote definitely... Uh, forces you to have more discipline on how you run the company and how, how you organize people. Um, and it also comes with being able to access a broader array of talent mm. because now you can get people wherever. Um, I, I do think that in-person has some benefits, but we've decided to be remote first. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And is that pretty common amongst companies now? You're up in SF. Is that you know from founder friends of yours? Is Are, are they pretty much all on the same boat or are some hard and fast, like in-person only? I, I think people are starting to switch more towards in-person only. Really? Um, yeah. But we're definitely going to stick with remote first. Yeah. So we got, I guess a little bit of time left. What else outside of uh, Rudder or APIs uh, are, <laughs> is interesting to you? Do you think about the world of co- economics or crypto or where, where do you place your uh, mind power when it's not thinking about Rudder? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think at the end of the day, I'm usually so drained from all of the shit that happened in the day that uh, I try to focus on things that are more calming. Um, but uh, I'm a huge runner. Oh, yeah. A huge biker. Love going outside. Yeah. Um, I also cook occasionally. Mm. Uh, experiment with like um, fermenting foods. It's pretty interesting. Kombucha? Um, yeah, kombucha, uh, kimchi, honey garlic. Mm. Um, there's a show that I watched called It's Alive uh, by Brad Leone. He just has a ton of like different fermentation experiments. Uh, so it's really cool to just try to reenact them. Yeah, and what is fermentation? It's I, I've I've even made kombucha, but I, I I is it the definitionally it's the idea of starting with a uh, a base product and letting the bacteria compose it into a new, how, how would you define that? Yeah, yeah. So you basically have some base product and then you try to introduce friendly bacteria to it. To uh, The bacteria basically eats away at the sugar and creates some new substance that refines the flavor or creates an entirely new flavor. Mm. What else can you, uh, kimchi, uh, it's a famous one. Have you, have, you, have you ever made kimchi, fermented kimchi? Uh, I've tried. <laughs> Not successfully. Yeah. Yeah. It's a difficult one to get right. Yeah. Um, and how about the, so in SF, uh, f- food wise, is there any, um, we were talking a little bit pre-show about this, but I, I find it interesting because the food in a city so much dictates the, I feel like the, the vibe of a city, the, the, the influence the city has to attract other uh, people outside the city. Some people I, I've talked to, they'll even move to a city because the food is so good or out of a city because it's so bad. Um, San Francisco has such a good reputation for great restaurants. I, I'm curious, have you gotten into that scene or uh, go out or you just pretty much cook from home? I know we're kind of in, you know, even uh, during COVID, so it's not totally fair. This is tangential, Mike. I, I think it's hard for me to say this when I'm 24, but I'm just realizing that uh, definitely getting old where I think in, in the college days, I could just eat whatever I wanted uh, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Now, if I eat anything heavy for lunch, so if I have a burrito for lunch or if I have like a burger or something, just pass out immediately. Yeah. So usually default to eating salads uh, for lunch. Uh, and then on the weekends or, or for dinner or if I'm just chilling out, um, I'd probably go for, uh, there's a ton of like 
burrito places uh, in the mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I have a handful of like favorite Chinese food nice. spots that uh, I adore dash from. Nice, nice. How about people? Are there certain people or even books that have influenced you so far in, in your journey? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I'll start with people. Uh, I, I think, yeah, obviously I have to shout out my parents uh, for raising me and, and giving me <laughs> discipline to get here. Um, Yale specifically, I think Yale can do a lot better of a job uh, of building an entrepreneurial culture. And so there's probably only, I can probably count on one hand uh, entrepreneur friends that I'm close with uh, from Yale. Mm. Uh, but definitely credit to uh, Kevin uh, from Snack Pass. Uh, and then Derek from a company called Medallion. Um, definitely look up to those people, keep in close contact with them. Uh, and then, yeah, I have a bunch of friends in computer science uh, and who, are, who are out here uh, in the Bay Area that uh, hang out with occasionally. Uh, and then, yeah, huge shout out to my co-founder for working with me for the last three years totally. uh, and getting here with me. Totally. How about companies? Are there any particular companies? Um, and it might be the brand of a company, the, the, the technical accomplishments of the company, culture, and whatever stands out to you that has been uh, something that you model when you think about building Rudder? Ooh, that's an interesting one. Um, That's an interesting one. I think um, I think Clearbit mm. uh, does a really good job on their branding, and so definitely look up to them to figure out how to do marketing uh, and and company branding. Uh, and then I think uh, both Stripe and Plaid do a really good job on making sure that uh, they have the strongest engineering team. So they set the bar really high for engineering. Yeah. Uh, and and we definitely model ourselves after that too. Yeah. Stripe just amazingly seems to be, I'm not sure what Plaid's story was, but I was, I was in SF. I went to one of the early Stripe like dinner hackathons when it was like, there couldn't have been more than 50 people, 60 people in the company. And it was, it was such a electric vibe. You know, people there were so sharp, even in the early days, especially in the early days. Did, did Plaid have a similar experience? Do you know those guys? Did they YC too? Uh, they weren't YC. Uh, we're pretty familiar with the founders and, and other people in the company. Um, I think they definitely did something similar. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, <laughs> the co-founder was telling me about how they used to have like 72-hour hackathons or something like that. Don't quote me on that. Yeah. Um, but I, I think for Stripe, what really impresses me is just that it's, it's not just the early days, but it's the fact that they keep that bar so high even after they scale to becoming a really big company. Yeah. It's just so easy to uh, overhire or just hire for headcount when you get that large. And I think they've still done a really good job of making sure that everyone on their team counts. Yeah. Last thing I, I want to ask you about. So we're, we're kind of in a period where you know, July 5th we're recording. There's been a, a significant slowdown in the market. Crypto kind of imploded. I think private market funding, especially early stage, is lagging. You know, like series C, B, A, C will lag like public markets. You guys raised fairly recently, right? I, I'm curious how you're, if how you're thinking about raising in the future or has that affected you guys in any way um, and just general sentiment on, on the market? Yeah, I, I, I think the analogy here, I think there's a phrase that I heard from someone, which is um, uh, when, when the sea recedes, you see all the dead fish, mm-hmm. but a will can still swim. Mm-hmm. And, and so like, a lot of companies that have uh, loose business fundamentals or don't have the revenue that matches up to their valuation are going to be in a lot of trouble. What what we should focus on, which we have been before uh, tough times, is just having really solid business fundamentals and and growing revenue and, and growing the business. Uh, and so it doesn't really change how we yeah. think about fundraising at all. Good, good. You're in a good position then. Uh, how about online? Are you active on Twitter or anywhere else? Uh I'm, I'm, I'm like moderately active on Twitter, yeah. uh, not a huge social media person, uh, but 
that, that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't have an Instagram, uh, have a Facebook. Yeah. We got to write your ideas yeah. though, Ben. Medium or Substack or somewhere. I think if, if I could go back and have done one, one thing more disciplined, it would be writing ideas that I have down, not even necessarily publicizing them, but I find just purely the act of typing them out or writing them down it's just for me personally, so helps uh, clarify my thinking. Again, I'm not saying you have to do that or should do that, but it's uh, it's useful. Either way, man, so much enjoy the conversation, Peter. Um, congrats on all the awesome. podcasts. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. All right. Cheers, man. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts tweet about it or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.